Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. For this episode, we're going to continue answering some of the questions that were posed on my Facebook page. Again, I want to thank everybody that took the time to put questions out there. Again, I'm going to try to get through every single one of them. A few of them are ones that kind of warrant their own episode unto themselves. And so between, you know, and a couple more of these Q&A ones, answering some of the, the topics that require longer responses, and Josh Oden, who's a guy who's helped me out several times over the past year and a half, maybe even two years or so, um, he's a wealth of information, knows a lot about fungi, and he's going to be hopefully doing a podcast with me so we can ask him some more questions about the molds and fungi and the fungus we're finding in our enclosures because he has, you know, he knows what he's talking about. And again, I love doing the podcasts and videos because what will end up happening is if I don't know what I'm talking about with something and I put out there, hey, if anybody knows more about this than I do, somebody eventually that knows a lot more about it than I do comes forward and gives me some valuable information. So Josh, again, I can't wait to do this. I know I'm thinking you're listening. You should respond to all these. This will be a great one. I'm really excited about it and I think it's going to help a lot of people out and kind of dispel some of the rumors and nasty myths there are out there about mold and fungus. But before we roll into the first bout of questions, I have kind of cool story to tell that uh, happened this week. I was contacted about, oh gosh, about two or three months ago by a YouTuber who does the YouTube channel Scare Theater. Now, I just so happen to have followed this. It has nothing to do with arachnids or tarantulas or anything of that nature. It's not a pet tuber. He basically started off doing creepypasta, talking about different creepypasta, and then goes out and does conspiracy theories and breaks them down and explains what the stories are and the myths are behind them, and then in some cases dispels them. I, I love that kind of stuff, so I've always kind of liked the channel. And I teach a class, a reading class at school, where one of the critical thinking activities I have the kids do is we do urban legends and talk about the fact that, you know, we can't, everything we read on the internet isn't always true, believe it or not, big shocker there. And one of the end of the year things they have to do projects is to choose a popular urban legend and research it and find out if it's true or not. Is there any, if it's true, what, how much of it is true? And then one of the things they had to do at the end of their presentation, after putting it together, they did a paper and they did a presentation, a Google Slides presentation, is they had to find a cool YouTube video or clip that would kind of show what they were talking about. And so, for example... One of my kids did the Urban Legend of the Bunny Man and used Scare Theater's video as his video to back it up. So it was kind of cool because he, he emailed me. He didn't even say what his channel was. He was like, hey, this is Eric Wise. I'd love to do a collaboration with you because I have a fear of spiders. I want to get over my fear of spiders. Would there be any way for us to get together and do something? And I'm like, this is amazing because we've been doing a lot lately talking about arachnophobia getting over a fear of spiders. I've talked a lot about me getting over my own fear of spiders. So I thought this was a cool thing. Now, the only bad part about it is I don't get out much. I don't socialize much. And I know it sounds pitiful. I'm just not a very, I'm kind of an introverted person. I like to stay at home with the family and, and chill out. And we don't have a lot of company over because honestly, it's just uh, entertaining can be exhausting sometimes. So here's this person I've never met before. This is the first time I spoke to them and I'm inviting them to my house. So Luckily, you know, I knew enough about him. His channel has a lot of subscribers. He has a second channel called The Owler where he does more personal stuff. And I got a funny feeling this video will be going on The Owler. But, you know, from everything I've seen, good kid. You know, he's just into college. I think this might be his sophomore, in his sophomore year of college. So he and his girlfriend made the drive up from Pennsylvania to come up here. It finally happened to do the collaboration. They were fantastically nice. She was ridiculously inquisitive. And it's great because I've always said, 
when you've got somebody that is scared of tarantulas, is scared of spiders, you have to capitalize on that fascination. There's usually beneath the fear, beneath the sometimes, you know, manufactured repulsion, smush it, burn it, kill it. There is usually usually fascination in there. And if you can kind of enkindle that fascination, get it going, you can watch it switch over from, oh my gosh, I'm so scared, to, wow, let me hear more. So what happened? He, when he came in, you could tell there's, and, and we had discussed ahead of time, his goal was to hold the tarantula. Now everybody out there knows that I'm not a, big into handling. I don't handle a lot of mine. The one that I do occasionally handle because she comes out is my homeoma chilensis. I absolutely love that thing. However, one thing I will say, and I think I mentioned this in the podcast about arachnophobia, is a huge moment for me getting over my arachnophobia is when I could finally handle one. So I know, believe me, I've made all the arguments about why we shouldn't handle, why it's dangerous. Again, I've pointed out before that my reaction if something strikes at me or bites at me is I flip my hand away. So when I was finally able to do it and do so calmly, I can't even begin to tell you it was cathartic. It was like suddenly the thing was in my hand instead of being in terror of it. It was like, wow, this is it. I spent years afraid of these. It was a profound moment. So I do get it, but I do. This is why when I talk about handling and stuff, I don't take a hard line either way. I personally don't do a lot of handling. I know people that do a lot of handling. It doesn't upset me like it does some people. It's like, all right, if they're doing it safely, it's their animals. For crying out loud, people are out there abusing animals, killing them. You know, tie, it was just a thing with a heat wave and somebody tied their dog out and it died of heat exhaust. I mean, people are doing terrible things to their animals. Handling it, although many will consider it misguided because it puts the tarantula at risk, on a scale of things you could do to abuse your animal is probably pretty low. And I think for some of us, it is, and and if you haven't been arachnophobic, if you haven't had that moment where you've held one for the first time, you you probably won't understand it. But for those of us who are arachnophobic, it's a huge deal. So normally, I would never have anybody hold any of them. And I made it very, very clear that I was going to be reading his body language. And we'd obviously be reading the spider's body language. But there was nobody was going to pick up my baby with that was going to potentially fling their hand or flip it. So they came over. They had dinner over here. Unfortunately, they got caught in traffic for like two hours in New York. And basically, we had a fantastic conversation. It's sad because I got a funny feeling the majority of it didn't even make it to video because we sat down and started talking. I went into my spiel trying to win these guys over because for me, it was let's take somebody that doesn't like spiders and see if I can't infect them with some of my enthusiasm and some of the you know fascinating points that I know about them. And I, it was working. And we were talking for like an hour and she's asking questions. How do you do this? How big do they get? What is old world, new world going through the whole thing? And they're like, all right, let's do the interview. And I feel like I totally flopped the interview. But so if that gets out there and we everybody can giggle at me because at that point I'd already done it and now I'm trying to like rehash it real quick but it ended up uh you know not to spoil spoil alert if you plan on watching the video but he did not end up holding the spider but he was walking around an entire room surrounded by them was doing very very well he was filming I was bringing some of them out in the kitchen table so you could film them and you could see the interest he was visibly I don't want to say shaken but you could tell he was stressed out by it. It was it was wearing on him a bit, but you could see it start to relax a little bit. But then finally, I took one out. I had it in my hand. I had my girl out on the table, and he goes, can I pet her? I, he goes, do they like getting pet? I said, well, they don't like getting petted, but let me just see what happens if you touch her. And the first one, he kind of like came in and went to touch her, and then when he finally touched her, he like screamed and pulled his hand back, and we're like, okay, that's it. It's not going to happen. Uh, you're not going to flick my spider across the room. However, his girlfriend 
came, sat down, and held it with no problems whatsoever. Loved it. And as we were leaving, she's like, I hate to say this. And she looks at him. She's like, I'd love to get one of these. That's exactly what I was looking for. And it was huge for me because it's easy to sell people that are already interested. It's a different story to have people come over that are just more for the freak factor of it. Like, look at this guy. He has 180-something tarantulas in here. And I'm sure that's what they were thinking when they're driving up. And I explained he needs to marry her because that's like girlfriend material of the year that she's going to drive five and a half hours to go visit some weird guy who has tarantulas. But the fact that she walked out of here interested and wanting to know more about them was huge. So I just wanted to share that because I thought it was a cool uh, event. And obviously, the YouTube video will be up eventually, and I'll, I'll share a link to it. And hopefully, I don't look like too much of a doofus in it. Because again, I was on point. I was in teacher mode. I'm talking. We're going through all this stuff. And these are old worlds. And this is new worlds. And these are arboreals. doing my whole thing. And then they're like, what got you into trans? Oh, yeah, I like spider. I don't know. I, I'm afraid to look at it. Billy, I know, taped some of it. But I'm afraid to even go back and look at it because I, I just feel like I wasn't on my game at that point, but they had a good time. Hopefully the video comes out well and I'm not made to look like an Uber goober and uh, I'll be able to share it with all of you and uh, probably get flack for having somebody potentially hold a tarantula. But keep in mind, I'm not an idiot. It, it was explained beforehand because he's like, well, I'm going to hold one. And I made it very clear. You will hold one if I think you're ready to hold one. And also explained how if, God forbid, that thing shot up his arm, even if it did, anything didn't happen to the spider, that could set his arachnophobia back years. I know when I went to handle mine, it didn't go well the first time. And that set me back quite a while. So awesome opportunity. I was glad I got to do it. I was glad I got to meet the two of them. I'm feeling terrible right now because I'm going to text him in a moment because I can't remember his girlfriend's name for the life of me. I get very nervous when people introduce themselves and I never pay attention to names. And usually my family's really good at it, but apparently nobody heard it either. And I hate just saying the girlfriend because she was every bit is involved in this as he was. I don't want to like minimize her role in this. They were both fantastic. And she's somebody that might go out there and get one. So I'm going to have to text him in a minute and find out her name. Anyway, moving on. Next, uh, first question we're going to do is from Amanda and Adam Myers. What teas have you found to be more difficult to keep? Attitude, husbandry, etc. It's a good one. And one I'm going to have a hard time answering only because, all right, we're going to cross attitude right out. I started my tarantula career looking up tarantulas that I thought were going to be pretty and beautiful. And it didn't take me too long to figure out that the majority of the ones I was looking at going, wow, this is beautiful. This is blue. This is this is orange, an orange spider. I can't wait to get this. Were the feisty old worlds. So I remember reading about them, reading the horror stories. I went to arachnoboards, went through every single bite report. That was my reading for like a week, going through the bite reports for just about every species imaginable because I was assuming that at some point I was going to get bit. And again, this was early on. And reading these horror stories, watching YouTube videos, and I'll tell you, I, I the YouTube videos can be a dual-edged sword because if you have a fear of spiders, watching somebody's slap at them or run around or run up their arm or whatever is probably not the greatest thing to do because it just kind of reinforces those negative thoughts about keeping them. But I went and watched all of – I wanted to see what they were capable of. For me, it's like I always joke, you know, hope for the best, plan for the worst, hope for the best. It's always been my motto. It's not – I don't find it being pessimistic. I find it being prepared. You know, you're hoping things go well. I'm, I'm hopeful, so that's optimistic, right? But at the same time, what happens? What's the worst that can go 
wrong. So I watched a lot of this stuff and I had this notion in my mind of these, and I'll say it, aggressive tarantulas, the ones that like, I remember HMAC. I thought the HMAC was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. I saw pictures of them, the white, the gray, the black for a tarantula. It was just amazing. And then I read these horror stories about this thing bolting out of enclosures and tagging people and running up tongs and hitting them. And again, HMAC is one of those species that a lot of people report that I'm not going to try to pretend like my interactions with my collection of the be all end all. That's not true. I like going out to other people. So even if mine, I have a, spe- a particular species that I keep that seems to be well behaved, that doesn't necessarily mean it's well behaved for everybody else. So that is one of the species that generally people say are pretty ornery. For Myctopus, um, obviously I've spent years talking about for Myctopus, how much I love them. It's uh, my favorite terrestrial uh, genus. And when I first read about those, they said they were nasty, aggressive, these big brown, I'm like, I remember turning to Billy, I'm like, yeah, look at this one here, big brown nasty spider, just what I need. And I didn't buy them for a while. And this was the case for a lot of them because I did kind of want to take my time getting into the hobby, although I did end up getting an OBT earlier on. I did end up getting the Pisclotheria vitata earlier on, but I wanted to kind of ease my way in and get used to them. Well, here we are years and years later. I've kept a lot of the species that people have referred to as particularly defensive and nasty and, uh, or, you know, erroneously, I believe, aggressive. And I don't really have a very big problem with attitude. I, my Formictopus, the threat poses that I've gotten for my Formictopus have come from me dropping prey items in. They seem to go in standby mode. And when you drop a prey item in, they all of a sudden threat posture because they don't know what's going on before inevitably grabbing the prey item. My old worlds, I've gotten a threat pose from an Elm Balfouri, which I believe I posted a video up of years ago. I have a threat pose from my, believe it or not, my Pisletheria Metallica. And this was because like a doofus, I was trying to get a picture of her with the flash on my camera. And I got really close and the flash went off and she freaked and slapped at the camera. She actually hit the camera. So dumb move. This was years ago, but a really dumb move on my part. And I don't blame her because if I was sitting there in standby mode and somebody all of a sudden flashed me in the face, I'd probably swing at them as well. So that was on me, not her. But I haven't aggressive wise. I don't really have an issue. Speed wise can be intimidating. So for example, I just did my H uh, Diva Matha. I rehoused, I'm hoping her, but I've had a string of males lately. So we'll just go him. I'll just go with it, maybe reverse jigs. But I was, that was when I've seen them move. I've seen how fast they can, you know, move from point A to point B, the teleporters. Those give me pause and get the heart racing a little bit when I do the rehousings again, because I'm planning for the worst. If this thing decides to go full throttle, even with a little extra container I have, the chances are it's going to be up and out of that container and on the table or up the backdrop I use for the videos before I can blink my eye. So then what? So that's always in the back of my mind. But again, knock on wood, I don't want to be superstitious, but I don't want to sound like I'm being cocky. I haven't had a lot of trouble with them. So as far as you know, attitudes, I can honestly say there's not a single one in my collection that I worry about anymore. If it had been years ago, they were like the OBT. I treated like it was radioactive. The Pisolotheria, when it was time to do a, a, a pokey, like everybody in the house knew about, oh, dad's, dad's rehousing a pokey. Here we go. But I think, it, and it wasn't fear. It was that respect in recognizing, again, what they can do. Not what they're probably going to do, what not what they're most likely to do, but what they are capable of doing. The bites could be nasty. So those ones, again, just got the heart racing, got the, it got me sweating a little bit. But now it's like I'm used to the behaviors I found. Again, we did the whole podcast on how to, you know, prevent 
aggressive tarantulas. And one of the things we spoke about is the fact that I found that if set up correctly, the majority of tarantulas, you won't get the defensive behavior. That is not to say the people out there that have a tarantula that's set up perfectly well, that they might not have one that's a little more defensive. Uh, again, I'm not, I don't ever want to come across I'm telling people that have a tarantula that's giving them a hard time that they're not keeping it correctly. That's not it. I've just found that the majority of these old worlds, let's, let's talk specifically about old worlds. If given a place to hide, if given the proper area to burrow or the pisolotheria place that they can, you know, go behind their dirt curtains or behind the cork bark, generally speaking, they would rather get out of your way. They don't want to stand and fight. It seems like the new worlds are the ones people have a hard time with. Somebody was talking to me about their G pokerpies, which I have four of them that are total sweethearts. And he's like, mine is a D. I can't, you know, get anywhere near that thing without it striking. It's not just a feeding response. It seems like it wants to kill me. And obviously, there's going to be the oddballs. And obviously, these the species that we have get their reputations for their temperaments from somewhere. Somebody didn't just look at, you know, the OBT and go, you know what? It's orange. It's fire. It's probably evil. It's probably going to bite. No, that people have had bad interactions with them. I get that. But I also think as our husbandry and as our knowledge about how to keep them evolves, we tend to see less and less of these instances. So back in the day, OBT you read things that say they're terrestrial you put them in just you know a little bit of substrate they'd start webbing up you pull that container top off it would rip up the webbing you've just ripped the house or the roof off their house and then they go full throttle like that's it i'm gonna die so i'm gonna take you down with me now we give them we know enough to give them some depth a lot of us set them up kind of i, I know the term semi-arboreal is just you know it's not really semi-arboreal but we give them more height to their enclosures maybe give them cork bark leaned against the side so they have more room and that seems to work a lot better so amanda and adam as far as aggressive you know as, as far as ah, aggressive i slip right there as far as attitude not a lot of issues whatsoever as far as husbandry, P. muticus, hands down. That's the one that's been my bugaboo for years. Uh, I've uh, documented before through videos, and I think I might have done a podcast on it. That was one of the species I always wanted, loved them, thought, you know, the idea of a big nine inch, eight, nine inch baboon spider just blew my mind. So I originally got. I believe it was two slings or like three quarter inch slings. And obviously everything you read out there for the P. muticus, the king or queen baboon, what you want to do is give it a lot of substrate. Everything you read above all fossorial species, burrowing spiders, these are the ones you want to give as much burrowing room as you can. Because obviously you talk about in the wild, I believe, and I'm just going to throw a number out there. It may not be correct, but I believe they've measured burrows at nine feet. So the general consensus was, if they've got nine feet a foot burrow long burrows, as I stumble over my words, in the wild, then we're going to have a hard time coming anywhere near that in our collection. So the idea was to get as close as possible, which obviously was a fraction of what they would have in the wild. But for babies, it was easier because you could take a 32-ounce deli cup. You could fill it like five, six inches of dirt stick a little baby in that's that's a pretty big burrow and they will burrow all the way down to the bottom which is great right we've given them all that extra room so to make a very long story short i get my two babies i send them up the 32 ounce deli cup as they're digging their burrows down i'm dropping prey items in they're both eating and then both of them go all the way down to the bottom clear the whole bottom out go up to the top and close up the burrow so i'm like all right Pre-molt behavior, no problem whatsoever. I guess they ate enough between, you know, before I had them and when I got them and they were eating up top. So I waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and I'd pour water down the side to make sure there was some dampness on the bottom. Wait, 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 wait. Months go by and I'm starting to worry a little bit, but again, these guys have reputations for being glacially slow in terms of growth rate. So I'm like, this is totally ordinary. No problem. I look it up. P. muticus buried itself. Totally normal. 
Well, I look in one day, shine the flashlight in. One of them's in the bottom of her, her burrow in a death curl. So I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So I dig her up. She's dead. Long dead. Never came up in the tiny abdomen. It didn't make any sense to me. I'm like, she must have been ill. So then I've got the other one. I'm like, all right, let me take care of her. Make sure everything's okay. So the other one, I go through. I, I keep an eye on her. She molts. I'm like, perfect. She's molted. She, I see her stretching out. She does her spider yoga. A week goes by. I'm like, all right, she should be opening this thing up pretty soon. Doesn't open the thing up. A few more weeks go by. She still hasn't come up to eat. I'm putting prey items on the top because generally what happens with the fossorial species is even though they're in their burrows, they can feel, they can sense the prey walking around up top. They feel the vibrations and they come up and get them. So I'm like assuming she's going to come and get them. Well, then one day I go in there, the prey item's gone. I'm like, fantastic. I go drop another prey item in, nothing I think it was like three months later, she died as well, or he died, whatever it was, died as well. And I was devastated. I'm like, what am I doing wrong here? I looked up the husbandry for these guys from several different people. I talked to people that kept them. Oh, yeah, I gave them a bunch of dirt they're going to eat. Could not for the life of me figure out where I went wrong. So I stayed away from them for a little while. I'm like, all right, obviously, this isn't going to be my species. I, I didn't get it. Because we're always told, never dig them up. when they're And, and normally, this rule... Is, is pretty accurate, but when they bury themselves, it's usually for a reason. They know what they're doing. Never dig them up. So I didn't dig any of these up. I assumed they were going to come up and get the prey. Fast forward, I get two more juvenile specimens. I put them in these giant, they're about probably three and a half, four gallons, but they offer, I had about nine to 10 inches of substrate in them, which was a lot of substrate. And I put both juveniles in. And of course, they did their thing where they went down. I gave them a, a starter burrow with a little piece of cork bark. They both went in the starter burrows, dug straight down the corner. All the way around, tunnels all around the bottom. So, I mean, if you were able to measure the length of the tunnel overall, I'm guessing it was probably three, four, maybe even four feet because it spiraled all the way up. One of them popped out the middle at one point, so it spiraled all the way back up. They ate a few times, and then guess what they did? They covered up the entrances of their burrow, and they went down below. So I started pouring water in, pouring water in, pouring water in, making sure, you know, again, just making sure part of it was moist, hoping that they'd you know, be able to get moisture down there and make sure they didn't dry out. Waited, waited, started getting that feeling again that I had when I had the the slings before, like this isn't normal. So I happened to be watching a video one day. It was, I think, Deadly Tarantula Girl, and she was explaining why she keeps everything on shallow substrate. Now, before anybody jumps on, I don't want this to turn into talking about different YouTubers. I don't get into that. It was more just listening to her explain that she has kept the Pemuticus on like not enough substrate to dig on for 20 something years, which I don't necessarily agree with. I will put that out there. I'm not turning, this isn't a debate on husbandry, but somebody in a comment mentioned that theirs had gone down, buried itself and basically would not come up. And they finally opened it up and dropped something in and the thing ate immediately. And they said that, you know what, although they didn't encourage folks to keep them on only two inches of substrate, that there may be, some thought to the fact that maybe we're giving them a little too much dirt. So anyway, I read this and it was interesting because I went in originally with the idea of tearing it apart, not tear, I never do anything publicly, but in my mind, I was like, come on, two inches for a Pemuticus, you've got to be kidding me. But it got me thinking and it got me thinking about my two. So what I did was I dragged both of the containers out on the kitchen table. I took a pair of giant tongs and basically cleared out the entrance to their burrows, got a flashlight and took a chance. You're never supposed to do this. I'm not encouraging people to do this 99.9% .9 of the time. But in this instance, these guys hadn't eaten. One of them had molted and still hadn't come up to eat and did not look good. So I took a cricket and dropped it in the hole. First one went at it like a 
bolted across its tunnel, grabbed the cricket aid. I dropped another one, grabbed that one, dropped another one. I ended up dropping four or five in. Did the same thing with the other one. Opened up the hole, saw it with a flashlight. It looked skinny. It did not look like something that was in pre-malt. Dropped crickets down. Both of them ate like pigs. So there you have it. There's a species that we try to give them bigger burrows, deeper burrows. And what ends up happening is they close themselves down there. And now the thought process after talking to some people that know about where they come from and hearing from many other keepers that had experienced the exact same thing and didn't get what was happening, that it seems to be mostly slings and juveniles. In the wild, the thought is that they dig these big burrows, but there are prey items down there. They can find worms. They can find, apparently there's a, a burrowing type of cricket that they could find from that area that they probably dig down because they're safe from the elements, they're safe from predators, and prey just comes to them. Because the more that you figure, if they're digging, they're going to run into these animals as they're digging. They don't have to surface. So I think we thought the wrong way as far as, all right, they have nine-foot burrows in the wild. We got to get as close as we can as possible. But no, in the wild, they're finding prey down there. They're not surfacing. And it seems like some of these keep that instinct. So it's not all of them. I've heard from some people that raise them with no problem, but a lot of people came forward because I put a video up on YouTube explaining because it was like a an epiphany for me because I'd been doing everything by the book. I'd done my research. This is what everybody said. And suddenly I'm seeing something totally different. So that would be the, this was a long one. I apologize guys, but that would be the one species that gave me a hard time for a while. Again, two of them died in my care. And as much as I thought I was doing the right thing, I was not doing the right thing. The care was not correct. I could have given them more shallow substrate. I could have opened up those holes and dropped in some dead prey. Again, we don't like to do that. That's why it's been ingrained. I can't tell you how many times I've, you know, told people don't open the bird don't shove things in. I just had an email last week where guys like, I bought my G Rosea home, or no, it was a G Polkra. It webbed up its enclosure and I whipped down the webbing and I threw a cricket in and it didn't like it and it got scared. Well, yeah, that's because it's in pre-molt and you're, you run the chance of dropping a cricket in there with a molting spider, not a good thing. So it did fly in the face of everything I thought I knew and that I'd learned and that a lot of experienced keepers have said. But since then, I've gotten so many comments on that video of people seeing the same thing. So luckily it's not, I don't have one right now. Both of them ended up being mature, maturing and being male. So I need to get myself a queen baboon. So we will be trying this again soon. But now I have that in the back of my mind. Hopefully they go well. But that would be the species, if any, that gave me a hard time with husbandry because what I had learned, what I had researched, and again, I don't just read, I've never been one to go out and read the first thing and just go, oh, there it is. Although Mike's, Mike's basic trance was, his stuff is usually spot on. I know I, I, he gets some slack sometimes. I don't know why. I guess it's because he mentions temperature and humidity, but he also mentions where they come from, which I think is amazing, you know, where they're endemic to, what the temperatures are there. He does mention temperature and humidity. I don't do that in my care stuff. But his notes are spot on usually, and they're species that he's kept, and he tells his personal observations. So I, a big shout out to him. He's huge. But when I look up something, I'll look at Mike's, and then I'll look up a bunch of other ones. I'll look at YouTube videos. I'll see how they're keeping them. I'll go on arachnoboards and try to hear from people that actually keep them themselves and what they do. So I'm getting real information. And this is one where the real information kind of failed me. So that would be the species that gave me a hard time. Besides that, I honestly can't think of any behavior-wise nothing. I'm afraid I'm going to get bit in the butt, no pun intended, because I'm, I don't want this to come across as sounding cocky. It's not. It's just looking back, I've been very fortunate to have well-behaved tarantulas. I don't know if it's something I'm doing. I don't know if it's something about my house. I, I don't know, but I've had really good luck with having well-behaved tarantulas. Watch the next rehousing video. It'll be an absolute debacle, and I'm going to eat these words. But again, I say this with the, you know, 
is the utmost humility because I I can't put it on myself. I just I'm very fortunate that my tarantulas are well behaved, so there's not many that give me a hard time when I do get a threat pose. It's usually drawn out because I accidentally dropped a cricket on somebody. That's about it. So very fortunate there. Great question. Thanks so much. Let's go on to the next one now that I've taken uh, a long time to answer that one. Okay, so let's see. The next one we're going to take is one by Mark Somerville. And his question is, or his suggestion is, sorry, making the transition from keeping terrestrials to arboreals. That's a good one. And one I actually had to think a lot about because I made the transition so long ago that I had to kind of go back and try to remember like what, what the issues were. And I think a lot of people, the terrestrials seem to be the safer bet when starting out with the tarantula. I mean, you just throw some dirt in there, throw a hide in there, you know, the water dish, you're good to go. With the terrestrial, I mean, the arboreals, you have to give a little more thought to this, the type of aquarium or the container that you're using. The fact that it has to be more obviously, it has to have more height than floor space. And the fact that behaviors are different. And I think a big part of it is, and I thought about this the other day when I was trying to think of what to say for this question. Because at first I was like, well, it's not that big of a deal. I think part of the issue is there aren't many what I would call beginner species arboreals. And I went back and I was answering a question on my my YouTube video I did of the top beginner species, which I want to do another one because I have some change of thought on that. But I had to go through the video and I was like, wait a minute, the only beginner arboreal I have is a Vic of Vic. That was it. Out of all those, I think it was 12, 13 species on it. And I remember trying to come up with beginner arboreals in case somebody wanted to start with arboreal, but I couldn't think of any. But I think part of the issue is when you're switching over to arboreals, it's not only are you just switching from one type, one that dwells on the ground to another one that dwells up in the air, but you're dealing with some more husbandry differences and, and possibly more difficult husbandry and attitude. Because if you think about the arboreal species out there, there's the avicularia, which I think the majority of the species of avicularia just for temperament and, you know, overall ease or care are pretty easy to take care of, except for the fact there's a narrower band as far as their husbandry. You still hear about, I've had in the past couple months, I think a lot of people are picking up a vix, and I've been hearing a lot about sudden avicularia death syndrome again. I don't know. Originally, it was this thing where people would have an avicularia species. It was doing great, and then it's dead. There was no warning. It was just looking good, dead. And one of the things that's been attributed to in current years is the fact that people used to keep them very, very moist back in the day. They were, they were from tropical areas. The, the thought process out there was that they were very moisture dependent, so people would put them in these stuffy cages when, in fact, they need airflow. It seems like they're very susceptible to stuffy enclosures. So the key is less moisture, more airflow. And there's still people out there that keep them and do the moisture thing and are balancing it. I think a lot of us keep them dry with just a water dish or spritz down a side occasionally, dribble some water on their webbing or their plants to give them a drink. But we make sure there is a lot of cross ventilation. I mean, that's the trick with these guys. Make sure that the air gets through the enclosure. And that's the trick with all cross ventilation. The idea is that you don't just leave the top open where water can evaporate or moisture can evaporate, but there really isn't a breeze because the breeze usually doesn't come straight down. You open up the sides a bit so air goes through, keeps that air circulating. So with the Evix, at least, you're moving from keeping something on the ground you know, that you've probably already mastered. Like, it's very easy to keep a terrestrial tarantula. I still think it's not particularly difficult to keep an arboreal, but it's a, it's a different mindset. It's a different, different feng shui when setting up the enclosure. So I think for a lot of folks, it comes from the fact that you're not just shifting in gears in terms of just simple setup, which again, it is a simple setup. Don't freak out over the, the arboreals. They're not, 
it's the only real difference is how you arrange. It's all the same ingredients that you use for a terrestrial. You're just arranging them differently. But I think the biggest thing is it's a jump in complexity as far as keeping because you're dealing with something that's going to be a little more difficult to keep as far as husbandry is concerned. Or when you get into the tapis, the tapetocinus or salmopias, or eventually Pisolotheria, my faves, then you've got the you know defensiveness to worry about. So with salmos and the tapis, of course, are obviously infamous for being very fast and often referred to as teleporters. So you have that added into the mix as far as getting into a new tarantula. The salmopias are not quite as, I wouldn't say quite as fast, but have a reputation for being a bit more defensive than your average everyday New World tarantula species, so there is a step up there. And then you have Pisolotheria that are actually very calm overall and have the reputation they do because of the fact that their bites are quite potent and could put a hurting on you. So you're not just moving from, again, just from a terrestrial to a boreal or a different setup. You're you're dealing with a whole different set of traits, a different set of challenges. And I think that's a big part of it. But as far as the arboreal setup goes, I think for people looking to get into arboreals, obviously look at some enclosure styles. I think the big thing I see with arboreal species that the big mistake people make is they get something and they're either not prepared for it or they haven't done their research and you get one of these enclosures that's this big open enclosure with no hiding spots, no plants, and like a bunch of sticks lean together like the framework for a teepee and a spider that is not happy because there's nowhere to hide. Just like your basic terrestrial tarantula may like to get out of the light, may like to hide like the burrow or an opportunistic burrow where it's going to adopt to a piece of cork bark or something you put in there to hide. So will many of your arboreal species. In fact, I found that most of my arboreal species aren't very visible most of the time. They're hiding when their lights are on. They come out at night. When I come in the morning, flip the lights on, all the arboreals are glued to the side of their enclosures. They're cork barks. The most picturesque thing you've ever seen because it's what you picture when you picture an arboreal. A lot of people, I have a lot of people tell me, I, I got an arboreal and I don't know if there's something wrong with it, but I never see it out. It's always behind its cork bark or even underneath the ground, like almost burrowed a little bit. That's totally normal. And that's another thing that people need to be aware of. Avicularia, not a big deal. I, it, please let me know if anybody's had this, but I've yet to have an avicularia that burrows at any point in its life cycle. The, even the little slings tend to go up high and stay away from the ground. Pisolotheria, Tapetocinus, and Salmopias, all start off as kind of not full burrowers, although I've had, uh, I had a Pisolotheria, which was it? I think it was, was it my, or not, a, or one of the Pisolotheria species I have, I have to look it up, dug a pretty intricate burrow and it was down deep. I had put in a little extra dirt in it and it was like two inches of dirt when it was a sling and it was down there pretty deep. So the majority of them, um, Lamprepelma velocipes, another one, they're almost like borderline fossorial when they're younger. They they burrow. So be aware of that. You're not going to have your quintessential arboreal spider when you first get it, especially if you get it as a sling. And even some of the older juveniles and young adults will still hide. My Elvialosopes, basically, I gave it some substrate when I rehoused it. And she's probably about six or seven inches now. It's hard to see because she's very, very leggy and doesn't come out all that much. But she hides underneath all the time. Like she doesn't come out very often. And she's got like a little burrow and she's webbed all around it. And only when I come down in the morning, every once in a while, I catch her out. And as soon as the lights go on, she darts right to her enclosure. So something to keep in mind just with the pokies, the salmos, the tappies, uh, lamprepelma uh, species, they're going to do some burrowing first. So it makes it a little for people that want to transition right into 
The arboreal species, I hear a lot of like confusion because they set the enclosures up and the thing burrows. Be prepared for that. When you have a little one, you're almost, you almost you want to give them the height. You want to give them the opportunity just in case. But the majority of them are going to want to burrow. So definitely before you get into them, do a little research. Look at some enclosure types. Be prepared for the fact they're going to burrow when they're younger. When they're older, recognize they need hiding spots. Cork bark rounds work great. I will say I didn't use a lot of cork bark rounds in the past, and the only reason is is you're less likely to see them because many of them, if you give them a nice, good, uh, you know, size cork bark round with a good diameter, they will use that as their high, just much like they'd use a tree hollow, and you don't see them as much. Wherein, if you use a piece of cork bark flat, lean it against the back of the cage, give it a, you know, I usually put them in a spot that they're not going to get a lot of light because what they will do is go behind there, do some webbing, and create their burrow behind there, and you got a better shot to kind of peek on them when they're in their burrows, where if they're in the cork bark, you don't see them as much. Good thing about the cork bark is if you play your cards right and you go to do a rehousing, you can hold off the end of that cork bark, put a piece of cardboard over it, put a piece of cardboard on the other side, just pick the whole thing up, put it in the new enclosure, and you don't have to worry at all about messing with the tarantula. It'll eventually just adapt to the new enclosure and either use that as its hide or find another spot, but it, it's it's a very simple way of rehousing them without putting you or the spider in harm's way. So something to think about, but you definitely want to make sure it can hide, and another way if you use the cork bark flats the plastic plants, real plants, whatever you're using. Now I'm using more real plants. Back in the day, it was plastic plants. Make sure you've got some fake foliage in there and try to arrange it in a way that it's around the cork bark because that gives them that little buffer zone where they can hide. So for example, with my basic uh, pokey setups I used to use, I'd have the plastic bin that was like three and a half, four gallons. I'd put the substrate in. I'd give them quite a few inches. I'd put some of the uh, sphagnum moss in. Then I would lean a piece of cork bark against the side, one side of the enclosure. On the other side of that cork bark, I would put a full plastic plant, and there was fake leaves glued to the cork bark as well. So there was an area behind it where it was in the shadow, it could feel comfortable, and that's usually where they'd go and create their burrows, much like they would in the wild and crooks of trees or even in the roots of trees. So please, when you set them up, don't skimp on the furnishings. Put more plants is probably always better. You know, leave them a little spot where like I usually with a water dish, I leave a clear area, but don't, don't worry about getting some extra cork bark. I've actually done a thing where I've done a cork bark flat and a cork bark round, give them some, you know, places where they can choose where they're going to hide. But I think a little more thought, and this is the biggest thing I came up with. And again, it's not a lot. It's not a huge transition. Don't be afraid to do it. But besides being cognizant of the behaviors, besides being cognizant of the fact that if you're doing, I mean, pokies, uh, tappies and salmos are, are pretty bulletproof as far as husbandry. Uh, avicularia, you have, you're going to have a better, calmer attitude, but the husbandry is a little less forgiving, so that's something to keep in mind. But the biggest thing I can say is you have to spend a little more time setting up the enclosures. You have to give a little more thought to it, where your general run-of-the-mill terrestrial, it's a few inches of dirt, drop in something for a high, drop in a water dish, maybe throw in some sphagnum moss, a lot of people don't even put fake plants in there. They're good to go. With these, you want to give them some cover. For the avicularia, some of the species are going to want to web. You have the Caribbean versicolor that, in my mind, I'm still grouping in with avicularia, but very similar care. It's going to want to web. It's going to need, I get a lot of people that get the versicolors and they put them in a little enclosure with like a couple sticks leaned against each other and they go, I don't get it. It's not webbing. Well, it's not secure yet. It wants a nice tight corner it can start webbing to. If you see pictures of them in the wild, they're in the crooks of trees or between two trees rubbing together. They form their little burrows of web 
you want to make sure they have web anchors to web to. Now, the other big difference that I've found with between terrestrials and arboreals is recognizing pre-mole, and that can be a little trickier. And again, that comes with, I think, with experience because some of the signs, like they're not kicking their hairs bald like the other ones. You know, obviously, Pokey's old worlds, but the Samos and Tappies don't have the hairs. They don't kick the hairs. And so what you get is a lot of people that are used to seeing the signs of a terrestrial, like, oh, look at it. It's nice and fat. It's, it's plump. I can see the dark you know, skin beneath the old skin, it's bald, whatever the, some of the traits we are, it's become lethargic. Those can be a little more difficult to spot in an arboreal species. They tend to be much more lithe. Their abdomens don't get nearly as plump. Because if you think about it, they're up in trees. A fall from a fat arboreal species could be deadly, even more deadly than a fall from a terrestrial that's not going to normally in the wild get up that high. So they generally, like I've had avicularia molt that I honestly was shocked they molt because I didn't think they were all that fat, but it can be a little trickier, but there are some signs like with avicularia, they start losing the ability and other species as well. They lose their ability to grip the glass when they are getting into pre-molt. When they're getting ready to molt, they have a hard time sticking the glass. So you may see your avicularia trying to climb up and it slides down or some of them, I've seen them stumble. They're trying to climb the glass they can't they stumble so that's something to look for they do become more secretive they become more lethargic for so for example my carabina versicolor when she went into pre-molt last time she's a little spitfire now after she had her babies and had her molt after she had her babies she her whole attitude changed she's kind of wackadoo but she slowed down a great deal I'm like oh look at you you're finally calming down I went to open up her enclosure and she kind of just slowly moved away from me she will also web a lot more when she's she'll web herself into a little cocoon and a lot of the avicularia species will web themselves a little cocoon when they're getting ready to molt. So that's a sure sign indicator for the Salmopoas species. I find they go hide behind their cork bark and web themselves up. So for example, I have my Pyramenia right now who is in pre-molt. She was out eating and then I went to check on her the other day and she had basically webbed up and made dirt curtains around the hole. She has an exoterra with the background still in and a piece of rounded cork bark against it and she sealed the whole thing up. Pisolotheria, same thing. They generally retreat, although they don't web up quite as much. They'll just get very, they, they become a lot more lethargic and tend to hide more. They move a little more slowly. You don't see them out as much. And as far as avicularia, those are the ones because of some of the bright colors, you can tell they get duller overall. So for example, I just did a video where I was rehousing my Caribbean Versicolor and it's in pre-molt and you can tell the colors are kind of washed out and dull. But it can be trickier to recognize pre-molt. That is one of the little hiccups that I have for people that move from terrestrials to arboreals where they get them, they're all excited, they're feeding them, they're eating and they're like, I don't know what's going on. I stopped eating, but I can't tell if it's in pre-molt. It doesn't have a bald spot. It's not looking dark in the ab. Demand. It hasn't seemed to slow down. So that could be a little trickier. So another thing that tends to throw people off a little bit is the fact as well that where to put the water dish. And I've had people say, I don't put water dishes in because they won't drink. And I have seen the majority of my arboreal species drinking. I've caught my HMAC, uh, all of my uh, Somapias species. I've caught my Caribbean Versicolors drinking a couple times. I've caught my pokies, a couple of my pokies, not all my pokies, a couple of my pokies drinking. Usually they will wander down and find water if you put the water on the ground. However, some of us have found that it's even easier if you put the water above ground so they can find it. So if you see some of my videos I use for like juveniles or young adults, I use the one gallon mainstay containers from Walmart. And what I'll do is kind of use uh, glue to rivet, uh, you know, the, the hot glue to rivet the 
water dishes up high so that they can get to them. And I've seen them drinking out of those. And I know a lot of folks will do that with their slings as well. And the one thing to think about with the avicularia species, those are ones that sometimes the babies won't come down at all. So putting a water dish up high is a way to go. And that helps with obviously maintain the moisture levels in it. So putting the water dish up high, if you can find a creative way to do it, I'm actually working on something right now. I have a pattern I want to try where I can actually screw a ring into the side of my containers that will hold the little deli cups. They sell stuff for like geckos and stuff, but they're like eight bucks each. I'm thinking I can make something myself. They'll be a lot cheaper that I can kind of just install in any enclosure I'm using for an arboreal. So again, water dishes, you still want to include them. It's a matter of where you put them. Spagmoss. So the setup is very similar, except you're going to be going tall, not wide. So Biggest hint I can give is make sure there's, you know, more cover is better. With terrestrials, we don't need as much in the cover. If they have a den, they're just going to go, you know, bolt to it. Although some will appreciate some foliage and stuff to hide behind as they come out and explore a little bit. But I think with the arboreals, it's more important to make sure there's enough there for either anchoring, webbing to, or just hiding behind because you don't want, these are species you don't want to get startled and have them run out of the enclosures, especially when speaking about the Salmopias, Tapakinias. Or the piece of Lithuania, you want them to stay in their enclosure. So if they feel comfortable, if they have a spot that's darker that they can hide to when that enclosure lid comes off or when it's open, that's ideal. And again, pre-molt can be difficult to recognize. That's another thing. So look online. Sometimes you can find pictures of it. But it, it kind of comes with experience. And I will tell you, I have a better feel for it now. But it took me a long time to get to this point. And that was the arboreals were the ones that kind of caused me a little stress sometimes. Because I'm like, all right, stop eating. Is it pre-molt? Is it just not eating? What's going on. It doesn't necessarily look particularly fat. Keep in mind, they don't get as fat as the terrestrial species. And then depending on which species you're going to start with, be aware that with obviously the avicularia, the cares a little more, you got to be a little more spot on with your husbandry and your care. And with the other species, they are tough as nails. I mean, the Salmopias, Tapitacinias, Pisolotheria never had a problem with those. They're very tolerant of a variety of conditions, but be aware of some of the issues you could have with their behaviors and with their defensiveness. Not so much with the pokies. And again, I think most people getting into arboreals, it's funny because we've had this running you know, dialogue with some keepers where we talk about the fact that pokies are actually a nice intro to Tapitacinius and Salmopias because they tend to be more laid back than those two uh, genera. But the venom is the part that throws them over the edge and makes people, you know, kind of puts them on the advanced list. But a lot of people, when they get into the hobby, they start with the Salmopias and they start with the Tapitacinius and then move into Pokies. And I've had people go, do you think I'm ready? If you can deal with those two, you're fine usually with most species of Pisolotheria. That's something to think about. So again, if you're somebody out there that has terrestrial species that is thinking of making the jump to arboreals, and I'm hoping the people out there with arboreals are thinking the same thing I am, that it's it's not that bad of a jump. Just some, a few things you need to think about moving into it. But overall, I mean, I made I made a pretty seamless transition into it. Again, my fir first and only two, two things that threw me off was the fact that a lot of these species will actually burrow when they're slings. Like, is my sling broken? I, I just got this Tapanakinia species and it's buried all the way at the end of its enclosure. Nope, that's what they do when they're in the wild. And then the other thing is trying to recognize when they're in pre-molt. That can be a little tricky. Besides that, it's easy. They're amazing. You can do kind of so much more with the enclosures. I have a lot more fun with the enclosures of the arboreals because you can go up, you can put taller plants in there if you get into the bioactive or putting in you know live plants. There's a lot more you can do with them. So don't miss out. I'll make sure that if you're interested in them, Go for it. Do your research like with any other species, and I think you'll find they're not that difficult at all. It's really not much of a transition at all as far as the hobby goes. All right, that one went really long. Definitely going to run over my allotted time. 
for this month, but you know what? They've been good ones. They've been fun. They've been flowing. I could honestly keep going on this one. I thought I was going to cover more questions. So we've got enough material now probably to cover me for the rest of the summer. We'll see how it goes. I'm going to try to get Josh in here on one of these. I'm going to do a species-specific one coming up, and then we're going to continue answering some of these questions. Some of the breeding ones are going to be a little tricky because it can differ from species to species. So it's tough to go, you know, in general to talk about breeding. I can give some tips, some things I learned from talking to people that breed a lot more than I do. And let me make it very clear. I've bred before. I plan to breed again, but I'm not a particularly prolific breeder, and it's only because the amount of time it takes to keep the slings and take care of them. I have a huge collection, and I have all this Tom's Big Spider stuff going on, so something has to give. If I were to get into raising more slings and doing more breeding like I originally had planned when I first got heavy into the hobby, then I wouldn't really have time for a lot of this stuff. So unfortunately, I will talk about some of my experiences with them, give some tips about things that I had to think of before I start breeding and things you should think of before you start breeding. Although I think I might have covered that before. Let me go back and check because I tend to, I don't want to redo the whole thing that I, if I just did one, I, I feel like I did one on what to think about before breeding, but we'll check into that. So I will cover that stuff. And there's some other topics there that I think will probably take an entire podcast. But that'll about do it for this one. As always, thanks so much for all of you that listen. If you have any questions, comments, feel free to throw them on Facebook. I've been trying to monitor it a little bit better. Uh, that'll, I think that'll do it for this episode. We almost hit 50 minutes on this one. These things are getting long. So as always, we'll catch you guys next time.